Hello fellow switches, this is Sara and I am here alone for a solo podcast today. Zoe is very busy with work so she can't join us but hopefully I have planned a fairly dynamic podcast that will not bore you to death even if it's just me. We're gonna have a bit of a serious segment to begin with and then I'm gonna talk a bit about Motherland, I'm gonna talk about Rayla because we all miss content and they're filming season two now so I want to have a bit of a look back to what we've had so far and then our last segment I'm gonna try and recommend a couple of shows to you guys in case anyone needs something to watch after Motherland. I'm always looking for new queer shows to watch so perhaps there are people out there who feel the same way and want recommendations and if not you will just hear me rant about new shows out there. We've recently been talking a lot about representation and one thing that is really really important to me when it comes to representation is the concept of intersectionality. It's great to have diversity in shows but often even the good representation that we get is missing, um, or rather not missing but could be more intersectional. Because the truth is that a lot of people will fall in more than one minority category and it's underrepresented. So what I love is when a show manages to offer representation that isn't just about representing many different people or um, groups of people, but it's also about representing people who belong to several minority groups. Let's start with Motherland. We have said that Motherland offers a lot of diversity um, compared to most shows out there, I guess. We have female representation, we have queer representation across genders, because you know, they're minor characters, but we do have Byron as well. We have poly representation, because Abigail seems very open to having multiple partners. Perhaps that wouldn't necessarily um, evolve in a proper poly relationship for her, but she's clearly open to having multiple partners. We know the witches are not really set on monogamy as the norm, the accepted norm, if you want. And obviously we have ethnic diversity. But how intersectional is Motherland? I feel like the most intersectional character is probably Glory, because she's, well, she's female, so as far as we know. Actually, has anyone ever used pronouns to talk about Glory? 
I'm not sure we've seen her or them enough to determine their gender. Hmm. Well, either way, she presents as female, let's say. And so in, in some way, I think it would be kind of fair to assume that she's woman-aligned, even if her gender isn't necessarily female. She's clearly, or they, are clearly queer. Because what well, Glory does um, leave the Beltane dance with three other girls, no less. I always say she's my girl. And she is non-white. So that's at least three different minority groups that she belongs to. And I feel like that makes her the most intersectional character. Or they, them, I... Again, I do not want to assume pronouns. I just don't remember if we do hear anyone using pronouns for Glory. So I'm not sure. But Glory is a secondary character. And in the leads, the most intersectionality that we see is with the fact that our queer representation or LGBTQ plus representation comes in the form of female characters. So that would mean two different minority groups, which is great. Might there be more already? Yeah, Abigail could totally uh, be not straight. She could be bi, she could be pan. So it's possible that we'll get more intersectionality next season. We also don't know if Anacostia is straight. So that's another option, perhaps. Anyway, gay talk aside, um, I do think intersectionality is very, very important and because there have been instances in the fandom where the issue of intersectionality has been brought up, not perhaps directly, but indirectly, and there have been different reactions to it, I just want to clarify one thing. A character being intersectional and so being offering representation to more than one minority does not in any way invalidate any of the singular, <laughs> per se, representation that it offers. So if a character is both um, a lesbian and black, it doesn't mean that only black lesbian identifying people can feel represented by that character. As a lesbian, you, f you can feel represented by that character. As a black woman, you can feel represented by that character. As a black person, you can feel represented by that character. As a woman, you can feel represented by that character. You don't need to belong to the exact same minority groups, plural, that that character belongs to. You can feel represented by a character even if it's only partially so. Just like if we're talking about other sorts of representation that are not uh, about gender or ethnicity or um, sexuality, 
we can feel represented by a character because they like a certain thing, because they're an introvert, or because they're an extrovert, or because they're a gamer, or a nerd, or whatever. There are, there are so many, many reasons to feel represented by a character, and to feel represented in one element of our identity, we don't need to also feel represented by everything else that makes that character who they are. The reason I'm saying this is that there seems to be a sort of fear going around, and not just in the fandom, obviously, it's just a general thing that some people have, where they think that if more representation is added on top of a character who is already meant to bring diversity to a show, that will somehow invalidate the representation that is already there, or somehow make it less strong, or even just weight heavier on the character. One might say the last one is a legitimate concern because the more you add, the more elements of representation or elements of minority you add to a character, the harder it will be to represent it right, to write it properly. That is true, because the more intersectional it gets, the more complex it gets. Um, the experiences of people who belong to more than one minority groups are necessarily more complex in that factor than the experiences of people who belong to a single minority group. So that is true. It is, uh, if you want, a bit harder to write an intersectional character. But first of all, it is incredibly important to bring intersectionality on our screens. And secondly, the risks of intersectionality, they're, they're, they don't come from intersectionality, they come from the way that we handle, in the way that we tackle intersectionality and how we decide to try and represent it. So if you want to have a very intersectional character, as a writer, perhaps bring someone into the writing room who has that sort of experience, who understands the complexity of that sort of experience, and then it will not be heavy, it, it will not be a weight onto the character, and it will not be this super hard and difficult thing to write, because this, if, if you ask, it's, it always comes back to that. If you're not sure how to represent a minority, just ask that minority. Or, better yet, give them the chance to write characters to represent themselves. So, in a show, if you want to be more intersectional or if you want to represent uh, different minority groups that you don't f whose experiences you don't fully understand, just bring someone on board from that minority or from those minorities. It's really not that complicated to set up a space where you can handle intersectionality correctly.
So for for people who are worried about the character um, feeling heavy with representation, it's not gonna feel heavy if you do it the right way. It's because simply it's not representation isn't a weight on to a character. It's it's not. A character doesn't get heavier because you make them a lesbian. <laughs> and it doesn't get heavier still because you make them black or non-binary or trans or whatever. It, <laughs> it's not something that you add on that weights on the character. It's simply something that becomes more complex to write into a character without, let's say, flashing it too much and making it just a point of saying, oh look, we're progressive and we're giving representation. Because sure, that's that's not heavy though, that's obnoxious. There's a difference. That's obnoxious. But that's on the writer, that's on the creator. And that can be easily avoided. So, this was all to say, intersectionality is beautiful and I do hope that Motherland gets more intersectional. But mostly, I just wanted to address the way that we talk about intersectionality in queer, within queer representation, and within queer spaces. Rayla have 11 kiss scenes. This does not mean individual kisses, it just means they have 11 scenes where they end up kissing. Plus the one kiss scene of the fake Rael, which I don't know whether I should count, it's still a kiss between the actresses, but it is not a kiss between the characters. It was still weirdly very very nice. I mean, first of all, cutest to Taylor for being able not to reciprocate at all. If Amalia was kissing me, I don't know if I'd be able to just not react in any way. And Taylor was very good at keeping a very um, stone-like face. And cutest to Amalia because, wow, the way that she she knows obviously that that's not Rael in the scene. She's aware that Taylor is not playing Rael in that moment, and she knows how the scene is gonna go. She plus she's working with an uncooperative partner. She's working with Taylor while Taylor has to be completely indifferent to her, be completely cold. So cutest to Amalia for still being able to show the amount of passion and desire that she has for Rael. It was, it was a very intimate and in a very silly way passionate kiss on Scylla's part. So I really, really did appreciate it, and now I've gone into a mini rant about a fake kiss, which is great, fantastic. But going back to the actual Rayla kisses, we have 11 scenes where they kiss, and for the first five episodes, we have two Rayla kiss scenes in every episode. There's only one episode where where there is only one scene where they kiss because it's episode 7 where it's the you know reunion while Scylla is in the cell and that's the only episode where when we get 
real and Zilla kissing, it's only one scene instead of two. We get kisses for the majority of the episodes. I'm not gonna spend so much time on this segment, but I do want to point out how amazing the acting is when it comes to the intimate scenes and how different these scenes are from what we usually get on TV especially in a show like Motherland where there's not so much focus on the relationships other than how or rather you wouldn't expect there to be so much focus on the relationship considering it's about witches and terrorist organizations and witch hunters you know you wouldn't expect it to focus so much on a queer relationship and yet the Suffolk relationship is the one that gets the most attention and the most scenes and is fundamental to the plot which we've already talked about it in the podcast is amazing but I do wanna I wanna spend a couple of minutes just appreciating how real the scenes feel we get First of all, the first kiss leads to sex. And that scene is incredible. It is so powerful and so sexy in a very... um, It's like at the same time quite innocent. Because it's not like we see anything really. There's, There's no nude whatsoever. But it still feels incredibly sexy and intimate and passionate. There is so much passion in that sex scene while while remaining very PG in the sense of what is actually shown. And the details put into it are phenomenal. They're, the hand trembling, the lip tremble, Scylla's lip trembles when Rael is pushing her against the wall. It's a detail that kills me every single time and kind of makes me have um, likes of flashbacks which are not flashbacks that I can handle because I just can't Um, but it's just amazing because it's really hard. I I would imagine it would be really hard to fake that I don't think I can make my lip tremble. So the amount of emotion that the actresses were putting in that scene is unbelievable. And it really tells you how how good their chemistry is. And then we have her hand shakes when Rael is undoing her belt. She shakes. It's it's so beautiful. And the way that she closes it into a fist and reopens it, it's... There is so much in just that one detail. And it feels so incredibly real. It doesn't feel like it's done on purpose to, you know, carry the idea of their desires. It's not that. It doesn't feel like it's for us. It really feels like they're in the moment and it's one of the most real scenes 
that I've seen of a Safi couple that were not acted by two queer actresses. Not that we know for sure, I'm not assuming, I'm just gonna say, not knowing this was still the most real kiss. Not to mention how Amalia makes her voice tremble and she she sounds so breathless. It's beautiful, the details are incredible and it's not something that we get very often. And then their, their second kiss is quite sweet because the smiles on their faces, the second scene I mean, um, the one where Rael goes back to Scylla's room again uh, before the episode ends, they really represent the kind of emotion that you feel when you connect so deeply with someone so soon. It's like, I don't know, but I've been through that. I can, I understand that. I feel and I relate to what they're feeling. And I think it's beautiful to show this. It's, you know, there's the lesbian stereotypes of how we go so fast. <laughs> and, I mean, in part, it's kinda a tiny bit true. There is a bit of truth there. Um, so I can't complain too much when we get cliches like that. But this kind of going fast is realistic. Because it's not that we rush into things... Well, it is. Like, like I said, a tiny bit truth in there. A tiny bit of truth in there. But, you know, this, this is perfect. This is the kind of fast pace that you get because Rael is in a place she doesn't really want to be for Salem and Scylla becomes what she looks forward to every day, the reason why she even enjoys being for Salem. So it makes sense that it's so intense and so fast. Even though the relationship isn't that fast because the first I love you is quite a few months apart. It's in spring, at least, maybe even early summer, and they begin the relationship in autumn, supposedly. So that's that's quite a bit afar. I, I think every time I said I love you to a girl, I think it was faster than that, so cutest for waiting, Scylla, because we know you were whipped way earlier than that. And cutest to Rael for not saying it first, because Rael was so, so smitten with Scylla. We know that she's taken from the first moment. I mean, those siren eyes of Amalia's is it's a bit hard to not to fall in love right away. So cutest to Rael for not saying it first and very early in the relationship. I don't know if I would have resisted that long, so they didn't go that fast after all. In episode 2, we open with a bad scene. That is the flavor of that. It's just, it's something that we don't get very often with sapphic couples in fantasy shows. And um, it felt so good. 
the representation of that felt so good. The fact that Rael gets in trouble because she's late. Oh, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, pretty girls make me late. I would definitely... <laughs> I would definitely struggle. And I like the way they portray that. It's not... It's not too much, it's not too intense, but it's just the right amount. We see that, you know, they don't want to leave each other. Until, you know, until Scylla kind of annoys Rael and Rael is like, Yeah, right, I'm out of here. If you won't tell me the truth, I'm, right, I'm out of there. Which is cute, and I found Scylla's reaction to that adorable. The expression that she has is like, offended that her seduction skills are not working. It's beautiful. Fantastic. That is all I'm gonna say for about their kisses because I could honestly talk about this for hours. So I'm gonna leave it at that and next episode we are gonna rate Rayla kiss scenes. When Zoe's back, we're gonna find out what her favorite scene is and what my favorite scene is. And if you guys want to tell what yours is or what your least favorite is, drop us a comment. Let us know. Okay, so finally time for recommendations. There are three shows, mainly, all of them kind of new, that I wish to recommend to you guys, two of them in particular, and yes, I have chosen shows that I feel are some of the most intersectional of all the recent shows that came out, at least the ones that I watched so far. There's, I'm still working my way through other new shows that have recently been released. So my top three of new shows this year, I think they were all out this year. One of them might have come out like at the end of last year, but anyway, moving on. Number one is Vagrant Queen. Now, bear with me. Vagrant Queen was coming out as Motherland was coming out, and I love it. It's not a big show, it's not this great quality show, it's quite quirky, it's, it looks like a low budget show, so some of you might not enjoy that, but it is so funny and so adorable and so, so gay, just incredibly gay. For those of you who are fans of Winona Earp, Tim Rosen is in this. Tim plays Doc Holiday in Winona Earp, and he, in Vagrant Queen, he's kind of the comedy character. He's amazing. I love him. He's the best friend of the protagonist, and he's one of the leads. The thing that I love the most about this show, the protagonist is a black queer woman, a badass, and so, so much gay panic that goes on with her. She's adorable. She's one of those people who 
they, 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 I mean, she can kill you in probably a hundred different ways. But if a pretty girl says hi to her, she's completely useless and doesn't know what to do with herself. And it's adorable and I love it and I feel so represented. <laughs> because that's me. I'll talk about how tough I am and um, how I can fight and all this, blah blah blah. And then pretty girl says hi and I'm like, uh, hi. <laughs> I'll forget my name. It's women are my weakness. No, they're not my weakness. They're my strength, but also my weakness because like they kill me several times a day. But anyway, <laughs> I love the representation of just gay uselessness and panic. And I'm using gay as an umbrella term because I don't know exactly what her sexual orientation is. She might be gay, she might be bi, she might be pan, I don't know. I don't think it was specified in the show. And then her love interest is this super cute lesbian. I'm gonna assume she's a lesbian because there's a very, very strong focus on her attraction to women. She could still be bisexual. I think I read somewhere that she was a lesbian. Anyway, point is, she's a lady killer, but in the most adorable, dorky sense ever. She's a flirt. Now she's, she's this, oh my gosh, she's adorable, but she's this super confident, cute little bean. Incredibly adorable. She she can chat up any girl. She can take any girl home. And she does it multiple times throughout the show. She just picks up girl anywhere they are, doesn't matter what is going on. She sees a woman who's attractive that she likes and she just goes like, you know what guys? I got something to do. <laughs> and it's... I love her. I love her. She gets in trouble so much. She's a mechanic. Um, she saves the day multiple times but also gets in trouble a lot because <laughs> she's the least useless to be fair in the group but they are all pretty useless i think all characters throughout the show are very useless <laughs> and the dynamics only really work because they are all useless there's only one character who is not useless and she looks like a tough butch lesbian <laughs> I love her. Uh, we don't know her sexuality, by the way. She's a very sidelined character who just comes in and looks badass once in a while. But I love her. And yeah, the show is quite intersectional. Not like super intersectional, but quite a bit more intersectional than usual. The leads are queer. Um, the male that is... Well, to be fair, he's a lead too, so yeah, not all the leads are queer. Well, we don't know, he could be bisexual. I'm just talking to myself now. This is so fun. Um, but, so there, there are three main characters, and one is Tim's character, and the other two are these two sapphic girls. And they're, they're in love, well, they fall in love, and you guys will just have to watch and see if they end up together. 
so this is, to me, this is still something amazing. I don't know, I grew up without a lot of representation, so when this happens, when the lead is not only herself a Suffolk woman, but also she has a consistent love interest who's also a woman, and they somewhat end up falling in love. Again, I am not spoiling too much. It's incredible to me and I love it and I love the show. Uh, it's not a show that you can expect too much from but I think it's really funny to watch and really cute and really dorky. You know, if you like dorky stuff, you should watch it. But I do have one tiny warning. This show has already been cancelled. So season one is all there is going to be of this. I doubt anyone is going to save it because it's not it's not really a big show. It doesn't, doesn't have a big fandom. There's not a lot of people who know about it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about, the, about it on this podcast. But yeah, you know, if you don't mind the fact that it ends with season one, you should check it out and let me know if you like it. The second one that I want to talk about is Utopia Falls. And again, tiny disclaimer, this show has not been renewed yet. It might be, it might not. It's on Hulu, but we don't know yet if it's going to have a season two. I still hope, I really, really hope that it will have a season two. It looks like they want to renew it and they're just waiting to have the right numbers to justify the renewal so go go watch it and ask streaming sites i guess on in your country to um request to have it available for streaming so that they can get more people on board and they can get more numbers and they can renew it anyway utopia falls is set in this kind of post-apocalyptic dystopian reality and you know dystopian shows dystopian books dystopian stories are just oh i love them they're they're exactly what i look for again this is a low budget kind of show and it does have a cast that you know has a lot to learn but I don't feel like the inexperienced, well, somewhat inexperienced, because they're, they're still good. For inexperienced actors, they're still good. I don't feel like their inexperience hurts the series, per se. It just makes a different kind of experience. And I think a lot of low-budget shows overestimate themselves and kind of aim too high or kind of there's this feeling like they're they think that they're so great and everything and they sort of aim higher than what they where they can get with the resources available to them and i don't feel like utopia falls does this i feel like they understand their limits i feel like they know that they have somewhat limited resources and I think they handle it well. I think that is still an experience that is enjoyable for the viewer, despite the low budget. 
Now, why? Why do I want you guys to watch this? Well, I want you guys to watch this because it's one of the most intersectional shows that I have ever seen and one of the most diverse. There is, I think, seven main characters, well, sort of main characters, seven regulars. They're not all necessarily main characters. And the leads, the ones that form the lead couple, are non-white. Then there's other three, I think, three non-white characters. It's not confirmed. The third one, the boy, it's not confirmed, but it's quite obvious that they're all LGBTQ+. So we have Brooklyn and Sage, who are our sapphic girls, and they are the second main couple of the show. They get quite a bit of scenes, they, they get quite a bit of screen time, considering um, that the relationship is not as important to the plot as the lead couple. They do get their screen time, it's, it's quite balanced and fair. And the relationship is adorable and it's set up from the very beginning, so all the little signs that you see you don't have to wonder, is this just subtext? Will this ever happen? Yes, it will happen! And spoiler alert, because I feel like you can stop listening and like skip ahead 10 or 20 seconds, but I feel like it's always a nice thing to know that there is a happy ending! Or, you know, whatever version of it there can be considering the ending of season 1, but, you know, still counts. And the third queer character, who, again, it's not confirmed yet, but it's almost confirmed um, through, you know, the actor and the creators. It's kind of confirmed. He's... It's a guy, also non-white. Don't know whether he would be gay or bisexual or pan. And there, there also might be one other queer character, also not confirmed, and also don't know what sexual orientation exactly there, he would be. There's only one straight, white, male character, which is beautiful. Not the character, the fact that there's only one. It's just fantastic. Well, potentially two if the, if the other queer character doesn't turn out to be queer, but uh, I'm fairly confident that he will be, that he is queer, so. Now I'm completely ranting about this, but yes, go watch for representation, go watch because it's a very cute show, go watch because the story is actually quite interesting, and who doesn't love dystopian stories? Who doesn't? Plenty of people, I suppose, but you know, it's a cool genre, you should, you should try to get into it. Or not, just watch for the gays, that's also fair. There's, there's, the gays are beautiful. They're so cute. They're so cute. They're like so, so cute. And there's so much drama. There's there's quite a bit of like drama that could have been avoided. And I feel like it wasn't completely fair to one of the characters. But listen, the actress who plays Sage, looking all grumpy and angry, is just so adorable that you really don't mind the drama. You really don't mind the angst. 
in Brooklyn looking all sad and heartbroken. It's just, oh, it talks in my heart. And it's so beautiful. So, yeah, you'll enjoy the pain too. Don't worry. Um, and it won't last forever. So just go watch, feel safe. It's that That's the thing that I love about it as well. You can feel safe. You know that they're aware of what they're doing and they will do it right. So go watch it. The last show that I'm gonna recommend to you guys and it's of the three that I selected is the least intersectional. It's um, it is Dare Me. So Dare Me is also in danger of being cancelled. It's kind of been dropped by the channel that was hosting it. So now they they need to find someone else that can take them on board. So it's not fully cancelled yet, but in very, very much danger to be cancelled. This is great. I'm just giving you guys shows that potentially only will have one season. Um, but although this is also a conversation that I do want to have at some point on some kind of platform, because the shows that are the most intersectional are the ones that are at biggest risk of being cancelled. Unless they are for niche audiences, like the L word, the, the reboot, Generation Q, it is quite intersectional, but it's specifically for LGBTQ plus audiences. So, you know, because it's specifically for that, they don't mind it being intersectional. But when a show has a much more general and wider audience, then if it's intersectional, the more intersectional it is, the more likely it is to be cancelled. Which is awful and it should not, that should not be the case. So let's support the shows that try to do their part. Dear Me is quite a um, darker show compared to the other two. The other two are quite light and funny. Dear Me is a bit of a noir. It's a high school crime show and the main characters are three women who are in a sort of love triangle. Not fully a love triangle but sort of a love triangle. There's a lot of manipulation going on, there's a lot of denial, there's a lot of huh, people being in the closet. But it's not only subtext. It is absolutely canon and the story was first written as a book and the author of the book is the creator of the show so you can trust that she definitely wants to give sapphic representation and she wants the sapphic couple to be very very clearly queer and in love. So far with season one, it is focused on the on the sort of toxic relationship that one of the high school girls start to have with her coach, with her cheerleading coach, while her best friend, who is completely in love with her, kind of starts to be jealous. Not so much jealous, but she starts to feel put aside, which in a way is true, and their friendship starts to deteriorate. It might not be your kind of show, it's not funny, 
It's not light. But I do think it's beautiful. I do think it's a fairly accurate representation of teenage girls. There's quite a few issues that it tackles that are a bit heavy. But I do think that the feelings, the repressed feelings, well, somewhat repressed, repressed on one side, I suppose, are portrayed quite beautifully and realistically. So I don't know if it's if it's your kind of show, go have a watch and let me know what you think, maybe. Okay, I think that's it for today. As always, let us know if there's anything that you want us to talk about on the podcast. You can leave us a comment, you can send us a message on Twitter or Instagram at Switches Podcast. You can even email us at mfswitches at gmail.com. Stay safe and thank you for tuning in.